Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, we are continuing to make our way through the third volume of the Library of America's collection on, of, of the works of Herman Melville. Right, so this one, this is volume three. This is numbered, let me see its number, number 24. Um, and the very first volume published by the Library of America was Melville as well. So basically all his prose was, was collected within the first couple of years, two, three, four years of the Library of America's run. Right. And I've just gotten news that in 2019, they're publishing the fourth volume, which will be the final one. And this will collect the, the verse of, of Melville. I had always kind of assumed that this was mixed. This stuff was already published, mixed in with uh, the 19th century poetry works. But apparently there's enough. Of course, of course there's a lot of Civil War pieces and Clarel and, and other poems. So it's going to make, make, make up a whole volume that will come out next year. So we got that to look forward to some point in the future. If I ever figure out how to read poetry, I'll be able to take a look at, at that or not so much how much to read it, but how to really talk about it. Something I've been struggling with. But anyways, today we're going to be starting our look at the Piazza Tales. We'll spend a couple episodes on these, these tales. Some of them are really significant. I mean, all his short fiction is interesting. It has something important to say, but particularly two or three of the tales in the Piazza tales are really, really important. They've been looked at a lot by, by scholars of Melville. Right? But that shouldn't mean we, we ignore the, the uncollected uh, short fiction he wrote also. Um, so the background of the Piazza tales is essentially they're drawn from the short fiction that Melville was writing in 1853 to 1856. So this is the period after the failure of Pierre and Moby Dick, um, where he basically gets convinced to start trying to write fiction for magazines and for periodicals and he does quite well at it he he publishes mostly in putnam's and harper's i think all of his short fiction is published in those two places sometimes he publishes anonymously as with barnaby the scrivener sometimes i think he publishes under his, his name he often draws from contemporary events and newspaper accounts and things like that so like bernita sereno is from a, a masa delano's uh, work so it's kind of drawn from life and that's true of a lot of these stories and he does quite well at this. Uh, it doesn't really revive his career. Uh, for instance, the Piazza Tales only sells, I think, about a thousand copies, but that's a lot more than Pierre sold. Um, eventually, so the Piazza Tales were published in 1956, and it includes just five of these dozen or so tales that Melville wrote in that set four-year period. It, it has Bartleby the Scrivener, Bernito Sereno, The Lightning Rod Man, the Encantadas, which is a Pacific, basically novel, um, in ten parts, and then the Bell Tower, um, and then the sixth work that makes up the Piazza Tales is a short work called the Piazza, which I'll just talk about briefly, shortly. Um, so we see a return to some sea fiction in here, certainly with the Encantadas and Benito Sermeno. We also see him dealing dealing with uh, some of the social and economic and cultural issues he starts playing with in Pierre and to a lesser degree in Israel Potter. In fact, many of these stories deal with issues of class, power, race, and empire. 
So um, I'm going to talk about the first three of these stories in this episode, the Piazza, Barnaby the Scrivener, and Benito Sorrento, and then I'll, I'll look at uh, Lightning Rod Ren, uh, the Enchanted Islands, or the Encantadas, and the Bell Tower in the next in the next episode. This will take me a little bit over 100 pages, but this is unavoidable given the, just the length of Benito Sorrento, which itself I could probably do a whole episode on or even a whole series on it, but I'll, I'll be forced to be as brief as possible in summarizing what I think are the most important things to say about that that long work. Um, so anyways, let's just start with the Piazza. The Piazza was written as essentially an introduction to these five tales that get collected into this book. It sort of tries to bind these stories together. I think in that it's, it's mostly a failure. It's just a nice little set piece um, about a man, probably Melville himself, uh, who has this nice house like in the countryside. And he built this piazza so he can look out and at the countryside. And as he does so, he meditates on all sorts of classical and even, you know, liter another literary illusions such as Spencer and the fairies. He thinks about um, historical events, even names like one of the mountains, Charlemagne. So he's kind of giving meaning to this this whole setting, this this what he's seen. Um, and some of it's quite beautiful and nice, I think. Well, while he's out there watching from his piazza, watching the, the world around him, he starts to see a sparkle on the, you know, across the way. And this leads him to think a lot about fairies and Spencer. And of course, the fairy queen is Spencer's great work. And eventually he decides to kind of go on a quest to figure out what that sparkle is. And he enters into this. Let me give you a taste of, of this, um, the way he writes this. Quote, quote, how do I get to Fairyland by what road? I did not know, nor could anyone inform me, nor even one Edward Spencer who had been there, so he wrote me, further than that to reach Fairyland, it must be voyaged to. And with faith I took the fairy mountain's bearings, and that fi first fine day, when strength permitted, got into my yawl, high-pummeled leather one, cast off the fast, and away I sailed, free voyager as an autumn leaf. Early dawn and sailing westward, I sowed the morning before me. Some, morning, some miles brought me nigh the hills, but out of the present sight of them, I was not lost, for roadside goldenrods as guideposts pointed. I doubted not the way to the golden window. Following them, I came to a lone and languid region, where the grass-grown ways were traveled but by drowsy cattle, that less walked than stirred by day, seemed to walk and sleep. Browse they did not, the enchanted never eat, at least, so says Don Quixote, the sagest sage that ever lived. End quote. Um, and a lot of it is like that, and... If, if you didn't like Pierre, you're not going to like this story too much, I, I, I reckon. Um, but anyways, he eventually finds the site that was causing that sparkle, and it turns out to be the house of someone else, a woman named Mariana. And she's also looking out and seeing the sparkle from Belleville's Piazza. So they just kind of join together, you know, in some kind of connection, right? So what is this uh, story trying to do? Well, certainly we see Melville once again playing with classical illusions, maybe to excess uh, and probably to excess. Maybe this is once again Melville sort of making fun of, of the way letters at his time were obsessed with kind of this uh, sim symbolism and classical illusions. I got a real feeling of loneliness here, though. Uh, our narrator seems to be quite content looking out from his piazza at the world around him, but I, I got the sense of a, a great degree of loneliness alongside the setting of the idyllic countryside. Um, if this is supposed to set the tone of the tales, I don't see it. 
the tales which are often about oppression and power, authority, um, you know, th those tales don't really seem spoken to in any clear way in this introduction. I guess voyaging is, and voyages is a theme in several of the tales. The Encantadas, Benito Sereno has that. But I don't know. I, I, I see this as Belleville's trying to do something here, obviously. But for me, it doesn't really work to bind the stories together. It just does stand as a nice little set piece um, about two people kind of lost in, in their minds and in their dreams, kind of looking at it and then reaching something real, which is a, a real human encounter. And I think in that way we see maybe thematics here of, of people trying to reach each other and understand each other. And, and cross through a journey kind of reaching that understanding, right? That's um, in Bartleby the Scrivener, for instance, our narrator's always trying to understand Bartleby. In Bernita Serena, we have two ships with two different histories and cultures running against each other, having to come to terms with each other's position and what they are. And then we have a reflection on the history of that event. So I, I don't know, there's, there's probably ways that we can kind of stretch out this introduction to give it give it a little bit more satisfying meaning but uh, for me it it works maybe more just as a set piece that Belleville wanted to write to, to give the book a bit of an introduction which it didn't have rather than just slapping together five five stories so it's 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 worth taking a look at it's it only takes about you know 20 minutes or so to to get through so this, of course, gets us to Barnaby the Scrivener. Uh, this was originally published anonymously in 1853 in, in Putnam's. And it, um, it's, it's narrated by an old Wall Street lawyer who works in mortgages and kind of property transactions. And, and he just kind of introduces it as, as saying he wants to introduce the world to this profession of the Scrivener. The Scrivener was the law copyist, right? Of course, in those days before copy machines, before um, ditto machines or whatever, you had to copy these documents by hand, right? And you had to ensure that the copy was 100% the same because these were legal documents. They were legally binding. So there's a whole procedure for doing that. And it was a whole profession. So if you were a lawyer, you had to hire copyists who would make several copies of each document that was produced by the lawyer. And some of these would be books, essentially, like hundreds and hundreds of pages, especially in the type of work that our narrator's involved in, which is like Wall, Wall Street stuff. It, it's the stuff of capitalism. It's, it's business. It's not, he's not a criminal defense attorney or a prosecutor. He's just, uh, just doing business. So it's a very kind of boring type of legal work. And I think Melville picks that, um, uh, that job on purpose. So we're first introduced to the three employees that this man has. The first one is named Turkey, um, and he's an Englishman. He's 60 years old or so, and he's very diligent, but he kind of gets runs out of energy halfway through the day. Um, he's, he's sort of like, he's a bit of a parallel to the narrator in a way, both being old, both, uh, you know, having been, kind of been in this profession a while. Here's a bit of his description. Nevertheless, as he was in many ways the most valuable person to me, and all the time before 12 o'clock meridian was the quickest, steadiest creature too, accomplishing a great deal of work in a style not easy to be matched. For these reasons, I was willing to overlook his eccentricities, though indeed occasionally I remonstrated that with him. I did this very gently, however, because through his civilis, 
Civilius, nay, the blandest and most reverential of men in the morning, yet in the afternoon he was disposed upon provocation to be a slight rash with his tongue, in fact, insolvent. So that's a bit about him. He's, you know, these characters aren't that important, but I guess Belleville's trying to get at the type of people who work in these, these offices, the types of personalities. Um, now, but he's kind of stuck in his job, and he turned turkey. He's stuck in his job. He's going to do it forever. He's old anyways. Now, Nippers is kind of a young, cranky, very grumpy man. He's in his 20s. He doesn't seem to really want to be doing this. He's very short-tempered. Um, he seems to be very agitated. Like sometimes he'll move his desk around because he doesn't want to, he just wants a change of pace or something. So he seems not to be happy there. He's looking for other opportunities. So that's, that's him. He grinds his teeth. Um, and then the last character we're introduced to is Ginger Nut, who's just a 12-year-old errand boy in the office. So these are the three people that our narrator hires. Um, and as I said, the office they work in is one of the most boring types of law offices you can imagine, where the law basically involves um, property transactions, mortgages, those kinds of things. And then we're introduced to Bartleby, who is presented originally as, as quite diligent and very, very capable. Uh, in fact, he seems to be the ideal worker for this type of office, uh, just sitting and coming and doing his work. But one day, famously, he starts to refuse to do the work. I think the first time it comes up is when he's asked to, with the other uh, copyists, to proof the copy, right? So this is something you have to do where one person will read the original and everyone looks at their copy, or maybe they swap them. They read the copy to make sure it's all the same. Right. And he says, I would prefer not to. Right. And a lot has been made of the way this is worded. It's not I refuse like I'm on. He doesn't go on strike. He's not like a, he doesn't come at it with any kind of like labor antagonism. He just says, I would prefer not to. He doesn't even say, like, I won't. Right. Or I'm not going to do that. He just always says, I would prefer not to. Comes into it with this kind of gentleness. Um, and over time, this tendency to prefer not to do things evolves and develops to even to where he's not eating. And when people ask him, do you want something? He would say, I don't, I'd prefer not to do that. And eventually he just sort of starts sitting in his office and looking out at the wall. Um, and it gets odder and odder, of course, for the workers in the office. Now, at first, the narrator tries to make sense of this kind of in a moral sense, right? That he does his work, he makes his copies, but he should also take part in the proofing. This is early on when it was still just uh, when he was still just refusing to do certain tasks. Quote, shall I acknowledge it? The conclusion of this whole business was that I soon became a fixed fact in my chambers that a pale young scrivener by the name of Bartleby had a desk there that he copied for me at the usual rate of four cents a folio, 100 words, but he was permanently exempt from examining the work done by him, that duty being transferred to Turkey and Nippers out of compliment doubtless to their superior acuteness. Moreover, said Bartleby, was, said Bartleby was never on any account to be dispatched on the most trivial errand of any sort, and that even if entreated to take upon him such a matter, it was generally understood that he would prefer not to, in other words, that he would refuse point blank, end quote. And that's, that's key, the way it's worded here, is that the narrator takes this preference as a refusal to do it. And I don't think we ever see him actually pull out the knives to force Bartleby to do anything because he really can't I guess and but he but he doesn't seem to do that but for all intents and purposes the, stating the preference not to do something is as good as not as refusing outright to do it and just for people trying to find I guess strategies of resistance that's uh, 
an interesting approach, I suppose. Now, eventually, he finds Bartleby just essentially living in his office and, and not even leaving his office. He tries to reach Bartleby in various ways, often using moral arguments, often being quite soft and generous and open-hearted. But Bartleby eventually just refuses to answer even any questions about where he lives, where he wants, what he wants to do, does he want another job or whatever. He just refuses to answer, even answer jobs. His actions basically nullify the narrator's actions. And this is something that's uh, pretty clear by the second half of the story, that there's basically nothing the narrator can do to counteract this stated preference of not doing anything. He tries to kick him out, but eventually fails, largely because of his own moral reservations about kicking him out essentially onto the street. He starts to feel obligated and a need to care for Bartleby. Now, you know, even in the last few pages of the story, it's about 40 pages, I guess. And in the last, even in the last 10 pages, he's saying things like, you know, what earthly right do you have to stay here? Do you pay your rent? Do you pay taxes? Is this property yours? Do you want to start writing? You know, can you help me with work? He's always trying to negotiate with Bartleby, who always refers back to his preference not to do anything. Eventually, though, Bartleby is kicked out, but this doesn't really help matters because the next day, you know, the, the narrator comes back and it's found that he's just kind of living in the building and living in the stairwell and, and refusing to leave the building. So he's forced to eventually be, be taken over or basically f uh, arrested as a vagrant and sent to the tombs, which is like the jail in, in New York at the time. So later on, he visits Bartleby at the jail, and it's much the same. In fact, Bartleby at first doesn't even seem to remember the narrator. Uh, he goes to get him some food because he's also refusing to eat while he's in this jail. But when he gets back, he finds that Bartleby has, has died. He's just died in the jail from, I guess, boredom or lack of eating. I don't know. Maybe he preferred not to live. <clears throat> uh, now, the last, the last paragraph of the story is a really interesting conclusion. And I'll just read uh, quite a lot of this. Um, quote, imagination will readily supply the meager recital of poor Bartleby's internment, but ere parting with the reader, let me say that if this little narrative has sufficiently interested him to awaken curiosity as to what Bartleby was and what manner of life he led prior to the present narrator's making his acquaintance, I can only reply that in such curiosity I fully share, but I'm wholly unable to gratify it. Yet here, I hardly know whether I should divulge the one little item of rumor, that which comes to my ears a few months after the scrivener's decease. Upon what basis is rested I can't, be, I can't ascertain, and hence how true it is I cannot know. But insomuch as this vague report has not been without a certain stage suggestive interest to me, however sad, it may prove the same with others. And so I'll briefly mention it. The report was this, that Bartleby had been a subordinate clerk of the dead letter office in Washington, from which he had been suddenly removed by the change of administration. When I think over this rumor, hardly can I express the emotions which seize me. Dead letters? Does that not sound like dead men? Conceive a man by nature and misfortune prone to a pallid hopelessness. Can any business seem more fitted to heighten it than that of continually handling these dead letters and assorting them for the flames? For by the cartloads they are annually burned. Sometimes from out our folded paper the pale clerk takes a ring, a finger that was meant for perhaps molded in the graves, the banknote sent in swiftest charity. He whom it relieve, nor eats, nor hungers, no more. Pardon for those who die despairing. Hope for those who die unhoping. Good tidings for those who die stifled by unrelieved calamities. 
On errands of life, these letters speed to death. And then he concludes, oh, Bartleby, ah, humanity. So this is very interesting that the idea of the dead letter office is kind of a fascinating and brilliant introduction to this tale, it seems to me, because, you know, in a world of in the mid 19th century, people are moving around a lot. And, you know, you have migration to the West, you have the Atlantic world is still going. Eventually, by the 1860s, you're going to have the war, which are going to move people around. So the dead letter must have been a greater and greater problem over time as the country became more urban. And this was a problem exacerbated by our narrator, who's in the mortgage and transfer of ownership business. So the consequence of this, of course, is that letters aren't being received. People are dying without notice of their loved ones, or you know, people are just dropping off the face of the earth. Charity, help is not reaching the destinations. And so our narrator thinks about what this job meant for Bartleby, going through these letters, reading these letters, trying to find the destination, and, and you, in most cases, obviously failing to find out where, where they should go. But with them are all these stories that just get burned, right? They just get destroyed. As a historian, it's kind of horrific to think about, actually. But uh, anyways, that's the story. That's Bartleby the Scrivener. I, I hope you've read it. I, I think it's, it's worth looking at. And it, it can be read in so many different ways. Um, I've even watched these videos of like the philosopher Slavoj Zizek. He wears this shirt that says, I would prefer not to. Right. So this is a bit of a, you know, gets used by many different people of different political persuasions, you know, to, and they thrust some meaning onto it. And maybe we're back into the Moby Dick trap of the danger of throwing too much meaning onto a symbol. But this is certainly a fun one to, to play around with. Anyways, what can we say? So, I mean, you can reread this many times for new meaning, I think. Uh, the narrator, of course, is employed at a law office. He owns a law office. He hires a small group of copyists whose job it is to copy and double check the accuracy of these copies. So we, maybe we have a little bit of a Pequot here. We got a diverse but even smaller group of workers. They accomplish their task with little oversight. They, they seem to kind of work on their own. The profession has its rules that its members know. The boss doesn't have any bold schemes like Ahab, but you know, who knows what's being written in those documents. Some of them are quite long, so maybe there is a mad scheme that that Bartleby is resisting on some level. I don't know. You know, it's, there are people, of course, all the time who find out that they're working for an odious corporation that's doing things that they don't agree with and they resist in various ways. I don't know if they resist. They probably don't resist this way. Um, Bartleby, who, of course, is a diligent worker who comes in every day and does his job, um, he only seems to eat nuts, right? And eventually takes to sleeping in his office. Um, but it's this strange habit that kind of throws a wrench into his character, and that's his request to prefer not to, or some variant of that. And it's not that he doesn't do his work. At least early on, he still does his work. And his refusal is only when he's asked to do something by the boss, right? When the boss kind of comes in to be a manager. And this torments the narrator, who has authority, but is not used to using it and doesn't want to use it. And, and is very uncomfortable at the thought of using it. He seems to prefer an office that's well running without the need to apply authority. The problem here is that described, is described here is that faced by most middle managers in office settings who, care for, who have to be very careful in how they assert their authority, but don't want to undermine the harmony of the office within a too authoritarian intervention, right? Um, in offices, much of the time, much of the time discipline is enforced morally, right? Quote, don't like, don't you want to help your coworkers? 
do work that you can be proud of, right? Or wouldn't you like to? Explicit threats of being fired were usually not are not usually not there in workplaces, right? There might be the larger threat behind all that, but it's not stated openly. So in this context, Bartleby's resistance to the authority and the banality of office life is pretty effective. Bartleby is brilliantly calling the employer's bluff, but forcing them to use more explicit uses of power. In refusal to cooperate, the narrator responds, I'm seriously displeased. I am pained. Bartleby, I thought better of you. So this is essentially a moral pleading, expressing of concerns for the worker. You know, there's a threat of firing, maybe. And eventually there is the introduction of state authorities who drag Bartleby away into the tombs. Of course, by this point, whatever Bartleby is doing has progressed beyond work resistance to um, kind of a self-destructive refusal to do much of anything. Um, now, one way we can look at this, of course, is that Bartleby eventually dies of starvation because he's bored of his job. But there's this dead letter aspect which we can't ignore. I think one tension we see in this story is, is writing powerful or is it not? I, I can imagine Melville thinking at this time in his career that writing is not that important, that you can spend all this time writing this great book like Pierre, and then no one's going to read it, right? You might as well just be burned like the dead letters, you know, for, for all it matters. <clears throat> at the same time, we got this very banal writing of the law office, which is incredibly powerful and influential, yet no one will read that either. So it's not clear whether writing is meaningful or meaningless and worth doing or not worth doing, right? Creative writing may be meaningless, but brilliant, and no one reads it. Law writing, no one reads either, but it can be incredibly powerful, like with the mortgages. So th I think there's definitely some tension going on between these two, two things. And then, of course, you have the dead letters, the unread there are unread letters that Bartleby worked at in his previous job, right? How much love and, and suffering and, and care went into writing those letters for them to just be burned um, and forgotten, unread. The story can also be read as a battle of wills between the narrator and Bartleby as a struggle and, and how that's fought out. I mean, kind of like I've been already been hinting at this, you know, this kind of the way power works out in the, in the workplace. Um, that said, I'm not sure this is fully a story of work resistance, as much as we might like to, to do that. Um, but there is something about work here, certainly. Is labor futile or not? Is Bartleby's work meaningful? The dead letter office work doesn't seem to be that particularly meaningful, except he, the sorrow he feels in reading these letters. I don't know. Overall, I think the difficulty of finding a meaning for Bartleby and his resistance and his death and how he got to this point in his life is all what makes the story endlessly fascinating. Fascinating. Certainly, we should focus on the notion, the nature of resistance versus the passive versus the, the the assertive, or in this case, the preference versus the assertion. He never says, "I'm not going to do something." He just says, "Just says his preference." Now, in a democracy, in a world in which we're all supposed to be free, this becomes very difficult to fight against. Of course, slaves couldn't resist this way, right? If they preferred not to do labor, it didn't really matter because the whip would ensure that they it was done. So this soft power, this will you or prefer not to, is, is shown to be uh, a bit feeble, I guess, but um, and, 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 a, and a bit vapid, but um, 
you know, it's not effective for Bartleby, but it's effective for both of us, right? Very few people do what Bartleby does you know, when they're disgusted with, in the workplace. So, I don't know. I don't have any clear answers on how to read this. I just think this is a fascinating story that everyone should um, read at least once in their life and to, to meditate over a little bit. So, um, that's it for uh, Bartleby the Scrivener. Uh, we have to move on to Benito Sereno. So Benito Sereno is a very, very important work, uh, one of Melville's most important tales. It was first published in three parts in Putnam's uh, over the course of 1855. Um, and it was then reprinted, I think, basically in the same form in the Piazza, in the Piazza Tales. Uh, so I, I think I said in a previous episode, this is actually going to be turned into a TV series Set like a science fiction TV series where I suppose it might have a similar plot. I don't know if it's just going to be a one-off series or an extended series or what. It does sound like by moving it to space, there's a good chance of whitewashing going on. And, you know, I don't know what that will mean. I, that may not be bad. I mean, science fiction is often used aliens and humans as metaphors for race. So that may not be the end of the world. So we'll see what they do with it. But anyways, Benito Sereno, uh, what's in this tale? So it's, it's really long. I don't think I should give like a line-by-line -line account. That would take too long. But essentially what happens is this is based, first, this is based on, a, on a real event, one chapter of Delano Amaso's book. He was a real merchant captain in the American merchant fleet in the China trade. And in, one of, in his book, he talks about running into this ship that had experienced mutiny and the slaves, when they encountered this other ship, then had the, the crew pretend to still be in charge when actually it was the slaves that were in charge, right? And to kind of avoid getting identified as the slave mutiny. So it's a pretty good plan. That's what happens at Benito Sereno. So it's important to know that, you know, when you read it the first time, there's all these clues that something's wrong on this ship. And the narrator's quite clear that there are, but they're always being filtered through Delano's point of view. So it is kind of an objective narrator, but it's so kind of filtered through Delano's point of view, it's, it's hard to always see the clues. But the clues are obviously there, that something's wrong on this ship. And it turns out what's, what's wrong on the ship is that the, the slaves have, have taken over, right, and killed much, of the, killed much of the crew. But when they saw Delano's ship, they came up with this plan to basically pretend everything is normal, that they just need supplies and repairs or whatever, and then when the Americans leave, they'll finish their mutiny, I suppose. So anyways, our point of view is Captain Amaso Delano. He sees this other ship, he watches it for a while, and eventually he realizes that that ship is in distress, so he gets on the boat and crosses over to, towards it. Now his initial impression of the ship reveals right away that something's a bit off about this place. Quote, always upon first boarding a larger populous ship at sea, especially a foreign one, with a nondescript crew such as Lascars or Manila men, the impression varies in a peculiar way from that produced by first entering a strange house with strange inmates in a strange land. Both house and ship, like one by its walls and blinds, the other by its high bulwarks like ramparts, hoard from view their interiors till last moment, 
But in this, the case of the ship, there is this addition that the living spectacle contains upon the sudden and complete disclosure it has in contrast with the blank ocean, which zones it something of the effect of enchantment. The ship seems unreal, these strange costumes, gestures, and faces. But the shadowy tableau just emerged from the deep, which directly must re receive back what it gave. Perhaps it was some such influence as above is attempted to be described, which in Captain Delano's mind heightened whatever upon the state of scrutiny might have seemed unusual. And I quote, now, what's really unusual about the ship, it seems, is there's not that many Spaniards left compared to how many slaves there are on the ship. It's supposed to be a slaving ship. First, the slaves seem very, uh, a little too, too active, and discipline seems a little bit too lax for what you'd expect on a slave ship. Um, now, this is something that blinkers Delano, is Delano, I guess, doesn't really see slaves as active agents of history. So he's never able to actually put into his mind that what is ever wrong on the ship is, is a slave mutiny. Because he never gives agency to, to black people. And that, that's uh, a big theme of the book. Or really, it's a book, right? It's a, or a novella. Um, so anyways, uh, there's too many blacks on the ship compared to the Spaniards. Now, it's explained away that there was a disease that affected the whites more than, than the blacks. But nevertheless, it seems that something is off here. Now, Benito Sereno, the captain of this ship, the, you know, the presented captain anyways, is served by a slave called Babu. And he's the archetypical loyal slave. Right? Now, this is an archetype that might be a bit anachronistic, to be honest. I, I don't know. I, I have to think about it. Um, of course, Melville's writing this in the 1850s when, and his image of slavery must be in large, of, large part affected by the archetypes coming out of the American South. Part of that does include the, the belief in the loyal slave. Right? That comes kind of from the American South. I don't know if the Atlantic slavery that this novel is trying to describe, 1799 is when the novel's set, was uh, had this kind of archetype but we have it anyways babu is presented as the loyal slave now in fact he's the slave rebellion leader he's the leader of the rebels but he's the real person in charge here but benito sereno can't can't say anything because if he does then he risks his life right he, he still wants to hopefully get out of this with his with his head and in, head intact so that's the situation we have and much of the novel is just amaso delano talking to Benito Sereno, trying to get him alone, trying to get him a you know one-on-one -on -one with El Babu there, trying to find out what's going on. He does feel something's off on the ship, but he's never able to quite come to the conclusion that it's actually run by the slaves and that it's all a deception. Eventually, Benito tells his tale as best he can, even painting the slaves as a great benefit to them, saying how much they helped the ship and helped it be in good order and praising them and praising their, their loyalty. So again, we get the motif of the, royal, of the loyal slave presented here. He says at one point, Yes, their owner was quite right in assuring me that no feathers would be needed with the blacks. So the while, as is wont with the transportation, those Negroes have always remained on deck, not thrust below as in the guinea men. They have also from the beginning been freely permitted to range within the bounds of their pleasure. End quote. Now, that's of course very off that's not what life was like on slave ships slaves weren't allowed to just run around uh, without fetters but um, he's trying to explain the reality why, why the ship is the way it is now I think the big question that runs throughout this whole book 
and it is like 80 pages, is that why does it take so long for Delano, you know, really for more than half the novel, to really come to any conclusion? In fact, he never really figures it out. It's, it's only when Benito Serrano tries to escape and the slaves are forced into action that it's revealed that this is a slave rebellion. You know, he starts to have questions, put, starts to put things together, even identifying things about black culture that, that seem not right or what he understands about slavery. But he never pieces it all together. Now, a major turning point in the story is the, the shaving scene, which takes place in the Library of America version on pages 718 to 720 or so. And this is where Babu shaves Benito Serrano in his daily shaving routine. And I think it's actually Babu who says, like, it's time for your shave now. Um, and he does it. And during the shave, Benito Sereno is scared. He's sweating. He's anxious, shaking, things like that. Because, you know, he's in a situation where his potential murderer is, is armed with a sharp blade, right? So this is uh, an ancestor to all the fear-inducing shaving scenes in, in literature and film we've, we've come across ever, ever, ever since then, I think. Now, at some point during the shaving, you know, he, he's nicked. And it's partially because uh, Benito's kind of moving. Maybe I think it's explained away as like the rocking of the boat or something, but he gets nicked. This is the kind of thing that would lead to slaves to be punished, you know, violently by masters. But nothing really happens here. So that's another odd, odd moment, right? But we see at that moment, though, we, we who as a reader mostly realize that what's going on here, you know, it's, it's really kind of a fear-inducing scene but also has this you know the shifting of, of roles is so complex there because yes you have the servant doing something for the master right but the servant is actually the one in power you know just play acting that he's subservient so um after the shaving scene they go through the rest of the actions mostly negotiating for supplies i think delano ship is like selling them some sales and things so they can be on their way and then after Delano gets onto his boat to leave, to go back to his ship, uh, that's when Benito tries to jump overboard, and this brings the slaves, the former slaves at this point, into action and releases the slave revolt. They start attacking the other Spaniards. And at some point is revealed, like the, the, the sail comes down, it reveals that they had hidden the body of Alexander Aranda, the, the owner of the ship. And it had, they wrote on the slogan, like a slogan on top of his body follow your leader it's actually a good scene this is on page 734 quote meantime captain delano hailed his own vessel ordering their ports up and the guns run out by this time the cable of the sam dominique had been cut and the fag end in lashing out whipped across the canvas swung around the beak suddenly revealing as the bleached hull swung towards the open ocean death for the figurehead in the human skeleton chalky comment on chalked woods below follow your leader so with this uh Amasa Delano mobilizes his crew and they get their weapons together and they fight off the slaves and, and end the slave mutiny, the, 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 the uprising, and the slave revolt. And uh, the, really the rest of the tale then is told in the form of depositions. So the story is told once, once through Delano's point of view and the other through these depositions. And, and it kind of goes back and gives a more objective reporting on what happened uh, at, in the event is like the, the post-mortem. We learn that Babu is executed, um, as are many of the other slave leaders. 
So that's the tale. That in brief, that's the tale of Benito Serrano. But it's it's definitely worth checking out. Um, thematically, it's it's obviously very very rich, and it's probably his best work on race. Uh, it's something, of course, Melville had been interested in. He dealt with a lot in specific fiction, especially with Pacific Islanders, and living with Empire. He has Dago and Moby Dick that can be be looked at, but nowhere does he really get into the complexity, the psychological complexity of race. As, as much as he does in this work, and especially getting into, I think the biggest point is the blindness of Amasso Delano, the blindness of the American, as is often described in the book. Sometimes it's just the American, right? So Amasso Delano should be taken, at least to some degree, as a stand-in for America at the time. So obviously one big theme here is slave revolt. It's not, what's one we haven't gotten to too much in this podcast, maybe with some of the Holler Renaissance works a couple of years ago when I first started this podcast, I looked at that stuff. Um, but yeah, Slave Revolt. It's uh, set in 1799, which is, of course, the time of the American Revolution and the French Revolution and the Haitian Revolution. So it's in the middle of this period of Atlantic revolutions. Before 1808 and the banning of the slave trade, where Americans were still complicit in the slave trade, they're still part of it. They weren't, uh, they haven't, didn't set a, even a, a pretend moral position to be against at least international slave trade. Of course, they, they bought and sold slaves all the time after 1808. Um, both internationally and particularly domestically in New Orleans and other cities throughout the South. Um, but, you know, it's we have this right in the middle of the, the age of revolutions. And it's obviously that black people and, and slaves felt that they had a role to play in that revolutionary moment. They did it in the American Revolution. They did it in Haiti. They did it in Guadalupe and Martinique and, and throughout the Atlantic world participating as active players in these revolutions. So uh, certainly Melville is, is putting a story in that context. So, you know, the, the very thing that Amasso Delano can't do, and that is to imagine these slaves having any, any agency, is what history shows and what historians now have a pretty good idea about is that they were very much leaders in these movements to end slavery whether it was the abolitionist movement or uh, the Haitian Revolution, most notably, or uh, the Amistad Rebellion or whatever. Melville was certainly aware of these, these the resistance of, of slaves to slavery. Um, I guess that you, you could make a, lot of, make a lot out of the two narrative point of views. I think the first being Delano's muddled and confused and biased point of view, and then the more neutral depositions and if you can kind of do a play-by-play -play, set them side by side and see what you get i think it'd be interesting to see is the objective narrative better at talking about race i think that's the big question i have thinking back on this is do you actually get the more honest account in like the depositions is that a place to go for a more honest conversation about race and its meaning in america or the whole atlantic um, racism, of course, is another major theme in this story. Throughout it, um, mostly Delano's failure to see the reality of what he was walking into. Um, Delano himself never questions slavery. He never questions its morality, its justice. Um, he never questions his own racial stereotypes. So, you know, that's why he can't imagine these enslaved men and women standing up for themselves and killing their masters and trying to, to get their freedom. 
So that's the big, that's the heart of his racism, right? And again, he is the American in much of the story. Tied to this, of course, is the theme of the loyal slave, royal, loyal slave Babu. Uh, I still think this might be a bit anachronistic. I'd have to see to what degree did do does the loyal slave appear in 18th century contexts. I have not seen it. I, I've seen it mostly as a, a fantasy of the 19th century. But nonetheless, Melville is using it to great effect here. It really allows him to sell this uh, shifting roles. It's actually, he need, you would need to invent this even if it didn't exist because it just, you know, the, the servant being the master, the master being the servant. It, it, it actually reminds me of Barnaby the Scrivener in a way where Bartleby goes from being a, a servant to, if not a master, at least someone who neuters entirely the master's authority, the boss's authority. Of course, that's not a master-slave relationship, just a worker-boss one. But anyways, uh, here it's turned on the head through force and, and, and revolutionary activism and leadership, right? We don't get that picture. Actually, we do in the trans or in the depositions, the, the the final few pages. We we get a, a better window into just what kind of leader Babu was and how he was able to organize these these slaves. Um, certainly, American naivete is key here. Uh, just the I think Melville is just trying to talk about how Americans view slavery and the slave trade and the heart of it being this idea that slaves are just not capable of of making history for themselves or, or freeing themselves or ruling themselves or being anything but slaves. And that, that is why the story has to be told from an American's point of view. And it's why Melville constantly refers to Delano as the American, a stand-in for all of us. So I don't know, I think that's the main, main themes here. Um, certainly, I probably should be saying a lot more about this tale, but this episode's getting a little bit long. I guess we could just talk maybe a little bit about the, you know, the fragility of control and power on the ship. Uh, we have, of course, Ahab as another model of, of power on the ship. And there's no mutiny there, but there's other stories of mutinies in Melville's fiction, like in Omu where you have uh, an effort to fight against power in the ship. You have desertion described in Taipei and Marty. You have ships that are victims of some kind of a, you know, turmoil like in Marty. Um, so the whole nature of leadership at sea is something Melville was certainly very interested in. And it's, you know, when a ship is out at sea without the backing of external state powers, without a police force, without a military, you know, what do captains really have to keep authority on their ship over their crew? In this case, it's it's slaves, so it's even more precarious. So, um, you know, there is there's also the context, I guess, of empire in the in the late 18th and 19th century throughout this and the precarious the precarious nature of that power faced with the activism of, of working people. So anyways, that's that's um. That's Benito Sereno and Barnaby the Scrivener and the Piazza, the first half, over the first half of the Piazza Tales. So um, that'll be it for now. In the next episode, I will take a look at the Lightning Rod Man, uh, the Encantadas, and the Bell Tower. Um, the Lightning Rod Man and the Bell Tower are both relatively short stories. The Encantadas is a, is a much longer tale. It's, it's kind of like Benito Sereno in that way. Also dealing with the sea um, and also dealing with issues of... of 
of slavery and empire. So I look forward to talking about those things with you. But in the meantime, if you have your own thoughts about Bartleby or Benito Serrano or Amaso Delano, please leave them below or, leave, or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And I will try to respond to you. Thanks as always for listening. And I'll see you next time when we'll be finishing up with the Piazza Tales by, by Herman Melville.